Hello, health investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. And if you're a regular listener, you know this is kind of weird because this episode wasn't published on a Monday. But the reason I'm releasing this bonus, special, whatever you want to call it, episode is because I just interviewed Dr. Paul Offit. And the information he shares is super timely and critical. And we've got to get the word out about COVID vaccines so that we can gain herd immunity and not only fight Omicron, but also any future variants. And I'm just so excited about everything that he shared. And I know you are going to love this episode as well. That's why I'm releasing it midweek. So I hope you enjoy this little bonus. Like I said, today you're going to hear from Dr. Paul Offit. Dr. Offit is the director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, as well as the Maurice R. Hilleman Professor of Vaccinology and a professor of pediatrics at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He has published more than 160 papers in medical and scientific journals in the areas of rotavirus-specific immune responses and vaccine safety, and he's authored 10 books. Dr. Offit is also the co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine, Rotatech, recommended for universal use in infants by the CDC in 2006 and by the WHO in 2013. In the episode, Dr. Offit shares why everyone who is eligible, kids included, should get vaccinated ASAP, why the vaccine does not impact fertility or alter your DNA, why booster mania, as he calls it, may be stalling herd immunity, and more. He literally shares so, so much. This may be one of the most jam-packed episodes on this podcast so far. Again, that's why I couldn't wait for you to hear it, and I'm releasing it early. But before we get to this awesome episode, I want to share one of my favorite resources with you, thrivemarket.com. I don't know about you, but I used to think that eating healthy meant I had to spend a lot of time and money at the grocery store. That is until I discovered Thrive Market. Thrive is an online grocery shopping platform that's essentially a mix of Costco, Whole Foods, and Amazon. Since Thrive delivers groceries directly to your door, they're able to cut out all middle people and heavily discount their inventory. I'm not kidding. When I buy groceries on Thrive versus going to the local grocery store, I save at least $20 per order, and I'm able to shop from the comfort of my couch. To read my full Thrive Market review, steal my shopping list of over 150 items, and save additional money on your first order, visit thehealthinvestment.com slash thrivemarket, or just click through the link in the show notes. And one more thing, if you've been dieting for years, but nothing has helped you keep the weight off long-term, I'm so glad you're hearing this right now because outside of hosting this podcast, I help people lose five to 50 pounds permanently by mastering the skill of weight loss and maintenance. Unlike one size fits all diets, apps, and programs that only give you short-term results, I guide you through my holistic 3A approach so that you're able to develop effortless evidence-based habits that work for your unique lifestyle feel completely in control around food, 
and start showing up as the trimmest, healthiest, most confident, most energized version of yourself. Visit thehealthinvestment.com to learn more about my group and one-on-one coaching programs. And please don't hesitate to reach out if you have any questions. I always love hearing from you. All right, it's time to hear from Dr. Offit. Enjoy, and please share this episode with anybody who would benefit. I really want to get the word out there about all the research-backed, evidence-based recommendations regarding the vaccine and just COVID in general. I'm Brooke Simonson, certified nutrition coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Dr. Offit. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. I have been extremely excited about this interview, so just very, very grateful that you're giving me your time today. It's my pleasure. Can you start? I am a little bit of a super fan, I guess you would say. (laughs) This is like a celebrity interview for me, but for those of you who don't know you, could you tell us about your background and specifically what led you to become a pediatrician and to become particularly interested in vaccines and infectious diseases? Well, probably for the usual arbitrary reasons that we do things. I, I think pediatrician. I, I think I was always attracted to um, to pediatrics, even as as a young person. I think maybe it was in part that we sort of always treat ourselves at some level. When I was five, I was in a polio ward for about six weeks, and also at the age of five, I ruptured my spleen, so I was in the hospital for a while. And I think when I, certainly when I was in the polio ward, I saw those children there as vulnerable and helpless and alone. There was only one visiting hour a week. Um, I remember looking out that front, that window next to my bed, waiting for my parents to come rescue me and never really happened. So I think that's it. I think, you know, I think maybe the passions of our adulthood are all linked to the scars of our childhood. And I think that's probably why a pediatrician, in terms of um, picking infectious diseases, after I did a pediatric residency, I was drawn by people like Ellen Wald and, and, uh, others who were just excellent at what they did in the world of pediatric infectious diseases. And when I went to Children's Hospital of Philadelphia to do a fellowship, uh, the person who was ahead of it was Stanley Plotkin, <coughs> excuse me, who um, it was a vaccine researcher. He'd been the inventor of the rubella vaccine. He was an important contributor to the rabies vaccine and the anthrax vaccines. And um, so he had experience of going from bench to bedside. And I picked the rotavirus as a project I was working on. And then for the next 25 years, it ended up being we created the strains that became uh, the rotavirus vaccine, Rotatech. And so that summarizes my entire life in about 90 seconds. <laughs> Perfect. You did a great job at that. I can tell you've done that before. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to dive into really uh, vaccines, especially the COVID vaccine for kids. I think I don't have kids yet, but I think as adults, right, we're 
we're maybe eager to do things for our own bodies, but then when it comes to kids, we're maybe especially cautious and hesitant. And I know there is a lot of vaccine hesitancy out there that persists, especially when it comes to vaccinating children. Why would you say it is important to vaccinate children, not just adults, even though the message is circulating that most children only get mild symptoms or no symptoms even if they get COVID? Well, it's true. I mean, children, when the virus first rolled into this country um, in you know January of 2020, the, the mantra was children get infected less frequently. And when they're infected, they're infected less severely. That's true. I mean, probably more than 90% of the deaths with this virus, now almost 900,000 deaths, have been in people over 55 years of age. But children can be infected, and they can be infected severely, and they can be infected fatally. There's been about 1,000 deaths in children from this virus, meaning children less than 18 years of age. Um, there's been 100 deaths in children between 5 and 11 years of age. So, you, so certainly young children can suffer this disease. And for that reason, then, it's important to vaccinate them. What about the long-term effects? Do those strike children just as much as they do adults? They certainly do strike children. And I think we're still trying to learn about what, what exactly long COVID is. The other thing that strikes children to a much greater extent than adults is this, this disease called multi-system inflammatory disease of children, which is a post-infectious inflammatory syndrome that's seen usually a month after a trivial infection. It occurs primarily in the 5 to 13-year-old child with a peak at about 9 years of age. So children usually have a trivial infection. They get over it. Then a month later, they come back. They're, they're not shedding virus anymore. They have antibodies in their bloodstream against the virus, but they have high fever, pneumonia, lung, liver disease, kidney disease, heart disease. Sometimes that, that disease is fatal. Um, it's a common reason, actually, to come into our hospitals. So I think for that reason, it's all the more important to vaccinate children. And so then children who are vaccinated aren't showing those more long-term serious effects? Right. That's right. Uh, and, and, and um, you know, the vaccine, the, the, the especially against this current variant, Omicron, is excellent at protecting against severe disease and therefore, I think, is very, very likely to decrease, dramatically decrease your chance of having any long COVID, even if you have a mild infection. Mm. What risks are parents mostly worried about when it comes to vaccinating their kids against COVID? Well, there's there's the real concerns. I mean, the, the legitimate concerns and then the sort of ill-founded concerns. The legitimate concern is myocarditis. I think that inflammation of the heart muscle um, was certainly seen uh, primarily in the 16 to 17-year-old. It occurred at a peak at about one in 5,000 uh, children. The good news is it's generally self-limited and um, self-resolving and uh, transient, but um, but it can rarely be more longer term. And, and so I think that's what people were really worried about. What was encouraging was that when we looked at the data in the 12 to 15 year old, um, the, the results was that it was much less common. And so far in the 5 to 11 year old and now millions of children. Uh, so it's about 25 percent of, of the 28 million children. So about maybe uh, seven or seven million children or so have been uh, vaccinated. Um, there hasn't hasn't been one case in, in the young child, oh. so that's good. Oh, wow. And then what are the perceived risks? Yeah, so the perceived risk is, you know, that it's going to affect my child's fertility or that it's going to alter my child's DNA or things like that, which is just uh, not true. Um, I can go <laughs> yeah. through the details of that, but it's certainly not true. And so those are more the kind of the 
the anti-vaccine tropes that are out there to scare people, or that it's going to cause long-term problems. You know that that you know we don't know what's going to happen 20 years from now, 30 years from now, which has really never been true for a vaccine for the most part. I, I mean, we've had vaccines now for a couple hundred years, starting with the smallpox vaccine, and you know you you develop an immune response very quickly after getting the vaccine, and then that's when you see the, the side effects. And certainly, vaccines can cause serious and occasionally fatal side effects, so allergic reactions and such. But um, in terms of seeing something 10 years later or 20 years later, I, I can think of no example of that. I know you're all about sort of evaluating risks and kind of mitigating risk. So then I believe what I've heard to be true, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the possible risks from getting the vaccine are far less than the risks from getting COVID. Right. Also, if you if you look at the myocarditis issue, which I think was a legitimate concern by parents, the virus also causes myocarditis um, more commonly and more severely. And Miss C, you know, that multi-system inflammatory disease of children, myocarditis is a common component occurring between 50 and 75 percent of the time and can be serious, requiring ICU admission. So to avoid vaccines is not a way to avoid myocarditis. I mean, because the virus is so common. Uh, you know, I really do think it, it, a choice not to get a vaccine is not a risk-free choice. It's just a choice to take a different risk, and I would argue much more serious risk. Mm-hmm. What are the top myths that you're hearing from parents? Is it the fertility one or the altered DNA one? Can you dive into those a bit more? Yeah, and, and the other, the third one that I hear commonly is that the the spike protein, which is the protein that your body makes when you get these mRNA vaccines or when you get the vectored virus vaccine of, of Johnson Johnson, that that spike protein is toxic. That, that's the other one that's very common. Um, there's a, there's a uh, researcher named Robert Malone who's, who's gotten that out there. He's appeared on programs like Joe Rogan's program and Steve Bannon's program, sort of putting that out there. So that, that's become the most common question I've gotten asked, but I can answer sort of all three. Um, yeah. re- regarding fertility, there were two researchers that's, uh, that uh, submitted a letter to the European Medicines Agency or EMA, which is like the European equivalent of the FDA, stating that the spike protein was genetically very similar to a protein that sits on the surface of placental cells called syncytin-1. And so, um, therefore, when you were making an immune response to the spike protein, which is what the vaccines ask your body to do, you were also inadvertently making an immune response to your placenta. So, well, first of all, that's not true. Those two proteins are not genetically identical. Um, the It's like saying you and I have the same social security number because they both contain the number five. So that was untrue. Two, they are immunologically distinct. So an immune response to your, um, your spike protein is, is not an immune response to syncytin-1. Also, there were, there were 36 pregnancies that occurred during the phase three trials with the mRNA vaccines. If it was true that, that the, um, this vaccine inhibited or, or lessened fertility, then virtually all of those pregnancies should have been in the placebo group, but they weren't. They were equally divided, vaccine and placebo. And also, if you're arguing that an immune response to the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein is directed against your placenta, you know, we've had more than 100 million people who've been infected in this country, in this country over the last couple of years. What's happened to the birth rate? And the answer is it stayed about the same. So that was wrong. The DNA thing is, is you know, it's, it's sort of understandable. You know, this is a genetic vaccine, meaning you're giving the gene that codes for or is the blueprint for the spike protein. And, and you know, normally what we do with, with vaccines is we'll give the protein, like if the hepatitis B vaccine is just the hepatitis B surface antigen or the human papillomavirus vaccine is the human papillomavirus surface protein. But now you're not doing that here. You're giving the gene 
And so people could reasonably say, well, if it's a genetic vaccine, can it affect my genes? So, so the way the mRNA vaccines work is the mRNA goes into the cytoplasm of the cell and then joins about 200,000 other pieces of mRNA that are there to make um, other proteins and enzymes that help you live. So it's nothing unique about that technology. I mean, mRNA is all in all of our cells. And the mRNA, in order to affect your genes, would have to go into the nucleus, which is where the DNA resides. And it can't do that because it doesn't have a nuclear access signal. So it can't get into the nucleus. Even if it got into the nucleus, it's RNA. It's not DNA. So it, in order to alter DNA, it would have to become DNA, which means it would have to be reverse transcribed to DNA, which requires an enzyme called, not cryptically, reverse transcriptase, which it also doesn't have. And even if that was true, which can't be true, it would have to integrate itself into DNA, which requires another enzyme called integrase, which it doesn't have. So it can't possibly alter your DNA. You have a better chance of becoming Spider-Man after you've gotten this vaccine than having it alter your DNA. Although I always wonder why people think that it's going to alter your DNA for the worse. I mean, why hmm. can't it give you superpowers? It yeah, can't, I mean, it turns out. maybe you could become Spider-Man and then that would be really cool. <laughs> yeah, no, actually you become Spider-Man when you're bit, bitten by a radioactive spider. Just so oh, we make right. that clear for you. Okay, true, true, stuff. true. Okay. <laughs> um, and then lastly, the business of the spike protein. Um, see, what's been confusing is there are many um, papers in the scientific and medical literature showing that the virus spike protein, meaning the, the, the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, can itself be toxic, and that's true. But the, 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 what people don't realize is that the protein that's being made by um, your cells um, is, is somewhat different. It's not immunologically different, meaning you're, you're going to make the same sort of immune response to the protein that you're making with the vaccine as compared to, to the protein on the surface of the virus. The difference is, is that in order for... Um, the virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, to enter your cells, the spike protein binds to the cell, then fuses to the cell, and then enters. That's the way it works. But the, the protein that your body makes with the vaccine is in a pre-fusion state. It's locked into a pre-fusion state. So it can't possibly fuse with a cell and enter the cell. So it's not possible. That That's why that the vaccine was made that way. So it just... Uh, People keep saying, well, the spike protein is dangerous, and it is when it's on the virus, but it's not dangerous when it's made by your cells with the vaccine because that protein can't enter cells because it's locked in a pre-fusion state. Mm. Are the risks from getting COVID and from the vaccine the same for adults as they are for kids, or are they somewhat different? Uh, they're similar, Me meaning with uh, primarily with the second dose, you can get headache, low-grade fever, joint pain, muscle pain. So that's true. It usually lasts for a day or two and then goes away. That's all a product of your immune system. You know, when your immune system revs up to make antibodies, it also makes, you know, many other proteins that have the names of chemokines and cytokines. And those have side effects. And those are the side effects. Although, you know, I think I think the immune system needs a better public relations team. I, I, a friend of mine who's in North Carolina, back in the early days when they were just doing phase three trials, so you didn't know whether you were getting the vaccine or you were getting placebo. Remember, he said that he got his shot, and then the next morning when he woke up, he had he had sort of fatigue and low-grade fever, and he thought, yes, I got the vaccine. So that's the right attitude. Uh, right. So it's better, actually, to have... Uh, some type of reaction, like the fever or the aches or whatever, because it shows your immune system's really kicking in. Right. That's exactly right. Is there any uh, research that suggests that women have a stronger effect? I, I read that somewhere. Is that based in science or no? 
stronger meaning have more in the way of side effects? Sorry, yeah, in the way of side effects. Yeah, no, I haven't seen that. I mean, when those things oh, okay. were presented to us at the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee, there didn't seem to be a gender-specific uh, response that both men and women could equally have that problem. Oh, okay, interesting. I know when we both, my husband and I got our second Pfizer shot, I was really knocked out and was feeling awful, and he was saying he felt fine. And then later in the day, he said, no, I feel fine. Just my whole body hurts. And I said, well, no, I don't think you feel fine. Then I think you have aches. So just now I was thinking maybe women are just more apt to admit I feel awful. And maybe men are just kind of saying, I feel fine. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Although, although, although my wife and I both got the vaccine and, and, and uh, I think I had more in the way of side effects than she did, which I was able to successfully treat by constantly whining to her. So that, oh, that, yeah. that worked. That does help as well, I've heard. Yeah, yeah that is definitely based in science. Right, exactly. <laughs> Has there always been some level of controversy around vaccines? Yes, right, starting from the smallpox vaccine. I mean, when Edward Jenner developed his smallpox vaccine in the late 1700s, there were cartoons sort of made by, I remember a guy named James Gilray was the first one that I remember seeing. Not that I was alive back in the early 1800s, but um, it's just seeing pictures of that where you see um, this sort of disinterested Edward Jenner giving a shot and all these people have fearful looks. And the reason they have fearful looks is that you can see that they're developing snouts and hooves and, you know, little, mm. little cows are growing out of their butts. So I really think that, that people thought that if you got this vaccine, which was derived from cowpox, that you could, in fact, develop cow-like characteristics, which obviously wasn't true. Hmm. So this is not a new phenomenon, but would you say it's really just social media that is causing maybe the uptick in vaccine skepticism? Or is it not even more skepticism now, would you say? I think it's the time. I mean, they're, they're in the 1950s, while, while there were vaccines that certainly had problems, um, so there was a polio vaccine that was made in the in the 1950s when Jonas Salk made his vaccine. Five companies made stepped forward to make it. One of them, Cutter Laboratories in Berkeley, California, made it badly. They failed to fully inactivate the virus. As a consequence, about 120,000 children, first and second graders in this country, were inoculated inadvertently with live, fully virulent polio virus. Mm. 40,000 developed short-lived polio. 164 were permanently paralyzed and 10 were killed. I think it was the single worst biological disaster in this country's history. But it didn't really shake people's confidence in vaccines. I mean, imagine something like that happening today. The, the wow. notion that vaccines were dangerous was really born in the early 80s of a false notion that the whooping cough vaccine, the whole cell pertussis vaccine, could cause a permanent brain damage, which wasn't true. But it really took hold that it, that it was true. And that really was the birth of the modern anti-vaccine movement. And I really just think it was the time. I think, you know, the early 80s was a much more cynical, much more litigious time. Maybe it was sort of a post-Watergate phenomenon, but I think it was just a different time. So do you think the anti-vaccine movement is gaining momentum or not so much? No, I think I think it is. I think that they have gained in this pandemic, which surprises me. I would have never predicted that. I mean, here you have a virus which has killed almost 900,000 people in this country that has brought us economically to our knees, that has caused children to suffer you know, an increase in, 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 in depression, an increase in suicide. You know, the, the children didn't go to go to go to school last year. And the vaccine is clearly our ticket out, as has been seen in, in countries that are have much higher vaccine rates than, than we do. 
Um, nonetheless, people are still willing to buy into these false notions of vaccines. One third of our population isn't vaccinated. And as a consequence, the pandemic continues to rage and will, I think, every winter, at least to some extent, until we have a higher percentage of our population immune. How, so that, I mean, you must be extremely frustrated by that because you're out on the front lines just trying to promote science. But how do we combat this skepticism? Well, with the only way you can, which is to, you know, with good information. So if people have a question about fertility or they have a question about altering your DNA or they have a question about the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein being dangerous, you know, you try and answer that question the best you can. But and I think that for some people who really do wonder about that, but are willing to be convinced by good science and reason, then you can you can make a difference. But I think for the conspiracy theorists who just simply believe that there is a conspiracy to hurt them. I don't think you can succeed. There, there's an old line by Neil deGrasse Tyson, which I think is a modification of something that, that uh, somebody had said previously, like Mark Twain or something. But basically, the, the, the line was, um, if people don't use reason or logic to reach a conclusion, uh, reason and logic are not going to talk them out of it. So that's mm-hmm. what you're up against. What percentage of the, you said a third are still not vaccinated, correct, of eligible individuals right. in so our the, country. Yeah, currently I think 62% are fully vaccinated. Okay. So I mean, how many conspiracy theorists are we talking about? <laughs> is it still so, is it the rest of them that aren't no. vaccinated? I, okay. I don't think so, no. I, I think if you look at the group, the single greatest group that has not been vaccinated are people less than 30. Ah. So so it, it, I mean if you look at sort of the greater than 65 year old, like 90% of people are vaccinated. And then if you do 10, 10 year increments working your way down 50 to 60, 40 to 50, 30 to 40, uh, there's lesser and lesser percentage each time. So that when you get to sort of the the um the 12 to 15 year old, now you're at 50% of, of people are fully vaccinated. When you go down to the five to eleven year old for whom a vaccine has been available now for more than two months, um, it's about twenty-three percent are vaccinated. So, you know, people have recently asked me about, you know, when can we expect a vaccine for the less than five-year-old? And I suspect we will certainly have it by the end of this year, but, you know, it doesn't work if you don't give it. And so it's just really frustrating that we talk about things like booster dosing when the real issue is just dosing. For anybody who works Uh. in a hospital that's taking care of kids, kids over five who can be vaccinated, invariably they're in the hospital because they're not vaccinated. Oh, wow. I know you've called that rush to get boosted booster mania. And so can you talk more about that? I know you think it could be harmful then for our overall efforts. Yeah, I I just think that um, I think a a third dose of, say, an mRNA containing vaccine is a value for people over 65. I think it's certainly a value for people who are immune compromised. There you can think of it, frankly, as a three dose series. It's certainly been proven to be a value for people who um, who live in long term care facilities. And I think for people who are who are or say over 50 who have high risk medical conditions, I think that it would be a value. But the, the question is, do we really need a booster dose for healthy young people, which will provide basically three to four months of protection against mild disease? Because the, the, what, what the, um, the vaccines currently do, let's say two doses of an mRNA vaccine, is they're still excellent at protection against serious illness. There's no waning of immunity against serious illness. The waning of immunity is against mild infection, which is what you would expect. Uh, you know, th- this is a mucosal virus. I mean, like rotavirus, like influenza virus, you're really not going to get long-term protection against mild illness. You, you are going 
to suffer mild illness very, very likely. The goal of most vaccines, frankly, is just to prevent serious illness. And that would be a reasonable goal for this vaccine, because if we're trying to prevent mild illness, then the third dose won't be the last. And you're already seeing Chile, um, Israel talking about a fourth dose. It's just, uh, it's not sustainable, I think, as a public health goal to prevent mild illness. Mm-hmm. So it should turn into more like the flu vaccine where you're preventing death. You may still get ill, but you're not going to likely die from the flu if you get vaccinated. So that's how we should be approaching this. Of- right, right. That, that's a really good point. The reason you get a yearly flu vaccine is because even if you've been um, vaccinated or naturally infected the year before, you are still not protected against serious illness. That doesn't appear to be true for the coronavirus vaccines, although coronavirus obviously can mutate and we, we've we now had our fourth variant come into this country. You're still protected against serious illness, unlike flu, because it, this virus doesn't mutate nearly to the extent that flu does. So mm. you're still protected against, against uh, serious illness because that protection is mediated by immunological memory cells, memory B cells, memory T helper cells, memory cytotoxic T cells, which tend to recognize certainly the T cells will recognize more conserved epitopes, uh, you know, immunological, immunologically distinct regions on the, the spike protein that are conserved. And that's why you've continued to have protection against serious illness. I mean, think about it. These vaccines, all of these vaccines, the Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna vaccine, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine were all made to protect against the original strain, meaning the, the mm-hmm. so-called Wu slash 2020 strain, the, you know, the, the, what's called referred to often as the ancestral strain. That's not the strain that left China. The strain that left China that swept across Asia, Europe, and the U.S. and killed a couple hundred thousand people here was the first variant called D614G, which was replaced by the alpha variant, which was replaced by the delta variant, which is now replaced by the Omicron variant. And in each case, these vaccines continue to protect against serious disease. So this isn't flu and 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 protect against serious disease really still for all age groups and for um you know for for uh, all uh, variants. So I'm that's why the the the, the frustration for me with booster dosing is not that I think booster dosing is going to be harmful. I just feel like it's it's kind of a diversion from what we should really be talking about. And I don't know the answer to this question, but I believe that there are answers to this question. How can you get people vaccinated, especially young people? I mean, this the, the you know the the people think that we're just about to end this pandemic and it's all going to be over soon. But but this this virus is going to be circulating in the world for a long time. I think that's a fair statement. Remember, we still vaccinate children with for the polio vaccine every year in this country. We haven't had polio in the United States since the 1970s. So why do we do it? We do it because polio still exists in the world. It's still in Pakistan. It's still in Afghanistan. So that's why we vaccinate against polio. This virus is going to be circulating in the world for a while. The good news is it looks like vaccines, two doses, say, of an mRNA-containing vaccine does induce protection that that seems to be fairly long-lived and maybe years or even decades against serious illness. And children grow up. So, you know, so vaccinate them now so that when they grow up, they're going to be protected because this virus is not going to completely go away for a while. We're going to need to have a highly immune population for years, if not decades. Hmm. So there is no real magic number of vaccinations that we need to reach to move beyond this. It's just... As many people as possible. <laughs> no, I think if you look at Israel, I think Israel provides a map. Israel has vaccination rates a little over 90% now, 91, 92%. 92% roughly of their population is vaccinated, fully vaccinated. 
Um, they also have uh, death rates of like two per day. That was the last the, the last data I saw, which would be because it's a much smaller country. That would be the equivalent of probably about uh, 70 deaths per day here in the U.S., um, which is obviously much less than we're seeing. We're seeing, you know, 1,200, 1,300 deaths a day. So I think um, th- there it is. No surprises. You want you want to get you want to put this pandemic behind you in this country? Just get vaccinated. But we just don't do it. There's just too many people who either are choosing not to vaccinate themselves or their children. And as a consequence, we're suffering that. Do you think one step forward would be for schools to mandate a COVID vaccine, public schools to mandate it? I think it would, I think it would help somewhat. I do think that would help somewhat. Certainly, remember, we have school mandates. We have, All 50 right. states have school mandates. So then the question becomes, would this be a reasonable vaccine to mandate? I mean, do we think that this disease is important enough to mandate it? Uh, yes. I, you know, again, a thousand children less than 18 have died. Um, that's more than die of flu. A flu usually kills 75 to 150 children a year. Measles would kill 500 children a year. Um, we have varicella would, would uh, kill between... Uh, uh, 75 and 100 uh, people a year. So, and we have vaccines for all of those. So, why not reasonably have a vaccine for this? I think we we could reasonably. That the problem is, it's become a cultural issue. This kind of bodily autonomy. Don't tell me how to raise my family. This is my civil liberty, and and it's not. It really is not your liberty to catch and transmit a potentially fatal infection. And you know, we talk how how we all agree, no matter which side of the aisle you're on, that 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 we want kids to go back in school. I agree with that. Let's get kids back in school. And the best way to do that, if we consider this to be a precious thing to do, is to make sure kids are vaccinated. And, and for those that can be, I mean, who are over five, and to make sure that, that we all wear masks, at least in the, in the, for the next four to six weeks, because this will settle down soon. It will. I mean, I think by the time we get to probably mid-February, we're going to see this settle. Omicron will settle down, which is why this whole discussion about an Omicron-specific vaccine seems a little silly, because I just think we're going to be largely past Omicron within a couple of months. Well, there's some some good news, I guess, <laughs> that we're moving past at least one variant. Are you confident that other variants are going to continue to pop up? Yes, I think that's an easy prediction to make. Uh, the, the, but I would also predict that you would still be protected against serious illness because you you have for the, the previous four variants. So I think I think that will still be true. But if it's not true, if it comes like, like for example, look at that uh, that Provincetown outbreak on July the fourth, which was uh, the, the birth of something that I think was a communications error, but also was educational. So here was a thousands of men get together, celebrate July fourth in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Seventy nine percent are vaccinated. So there's an outbreak. In the outbreak, 346 people who um, who who were vaccinated, nonetheless. Um, were uh, developed COVID. Of those 346, four were hospitalized. So that's a hospitalization rate of 1.2%. That's good. That's a vaccine that's working well. The, the remainder, the remaining people had, um, you know, mild or asymptomatic infection. So, so what did you learn from that? First, you learned vaccines working well, 1.2% hospitalization rate. That's great. If that was, it start, started to change. And so now your protection against serious illness was, you know, was not, not 1.2% people that were hospitalized, but 10%, 15%, 20%. That, then you're talking about a variant specific vaccine. Mm. So I think the, the, the communications error that happened in that outbreak was ever using the term breakthrough to describe a mild or asymptomatic illness. That's not a breakthrough. Breakthrough implies failure. That's not a failure. You want the vaccine to pre- prevent you from getting serious disease. And that vaccine did that. And so we set this unrealistic expectation 
vaccination for this vaccine, where we now expect it to protect against mild illness, which is true of no mucosal infection. So I think we just uh, we 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 miscommunicated that to the public. We should have never said breakthrough. Those aren't breakthroughs. Yeah, I was wondering where else you thought that messaging has kind of missed the mark through this. I know that's been a big one of just and then the people who are anti-vaccine, they just that added fuel to the fire of, oh, you said it was going to prevent mild illness and it didn't. So the vaccine doesn't work. And then they're kind of perpetuating that idea. Yeah, no, I think the other the other the other miscommunication was when President Biden stood up on August 18th and said, um, by September 20th, we are going to have booster doses available for everybody over 16. What he just did was he inadvertently sent the message that two doses wasn't enough. Mm. So then, mm-hmm. then became the concern, what does it mean to be fully vaccinated? I think we inadvertently keep damning this amazing vaccine. I mean, you have to give Trump credit to the Trump administration for within 11 months of identifying this virus and sequencing it, making two, two vaccines, the, the, both those mRNA vaccines that worked well, and the Biden administration for figuring out how to how to mass produce them, mass distribute them, mass administer them. I think it's it, it's an amazing accomplishment. But again, although it's the ticket out of this pandemic, there's just too many people who've chosen not to get it. And we're we're different as compared to many other countries out there with regard to that. Right. What advice do you give to parents who have kids that still aren't eligible for a vaccine? So so protect them to the degree that you can, which is to say, put a moat around them meaning everybody who comes in contact with them should be vaccinated, if, if they can be, over five years of age. I mean, we see kids come into our hospital who are little, meaning less than five years of age. They've invariably caught it from a family member who's not vaccinated. Um, and, then, and then, you know, and, and, and wear masks around them. I think when, when you're in, at least for the next four to six weeks before this, when this starts to calm down, just just hang in there for a little while longer. You're, you're not, you know, this even last year, if you looked last year, you know, December to January to February of last year, when we didn't really have a vaccine, most people hadn't gotten a vaccine. Most people had not been naturally infected. So the population immunity last year was was much, much less than this year. Nonetheless, last year you saw a dramatic decline in, in hospitalizations and deaths by mid-February. So I think we'll at least see that this year and no doubt sooner. I think we are starting to see, and I, I, I probably should never make predictions about this virus, but I do think we're moving to an endemic stage where basically we see the virus spread, sort of cause very little um, hospitalizations and deaths in the spring, summer, fall. And then as you hit the late fall, early winter, then you'll see a surge depending on what percentage of the population is immune. Mm. If you could reach every single American, let's say on a broadcast tonight on television, what would be the message you would want to say at this moment in the pandemic? We're almost there. Hang in there. If you can just 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 vaccinate yourself, if you know, for you will protect yourself for a long period of time. You, this is not a typical respiratory virus. It's not. This is not flu. I think when when uh, President, former President Trump said, you know, this is just like a bad case of flu. No, it's not. What's different about this virus and different about, frankly, every respiratory virus, all the other respiratory viruses out there like parainfluenza virus, influenza virus, respiratory syncytial virus, um, adenovirus, this virus ha- has the ability to cause you to make an immune response against the lining of your blood vessels. So it can cause strokes heart attacks, 
kidney disease, liver disease, heart disease. I mean, what virus does that? What respiratory virus does that? And it can cause long-term problems. It can cause you to lose your sense of taste, lose your sense of smell. It can cause brain fog. I mean, what respiratory virus does that? Don't fool around with this virus. I mean, people say to me, you know, I just want to get Omicron because that way I'll know I'll be immune. I don't have to worry about getting vaccinated. No, you don't. The virologists, the term virologists use to describe circulating viruses, we call them wild-type viruses. That's, that's, that's the phrase that's used because they're out of control, especially this virus, which causes things that no other respiratory virus does. Hmm. How concerned should we be? I'm speaking now selfishly about me <laughs> in my life. So I'm 37. I'm vaccinated. Uh, everybody I know is vaccinated. So what should my approach be to hanging out with people or, you know, if I'm not around young kids, is it safe to say kind of move on with life in a way or still be pretty locked down? I th- certainly for the next, say, four weeks or so. I think okay. if you're ever inside, wear a mask. Uh, you know, I, 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 I do that. I mean, I'm vaccinated and I've gotten a booster dose, but I'm over 65. Um, yeah. And I, I assume everybody I come in contact with when I'm inside is unvaccinated. I just make okay. that assumption. When I go to the grocery store or anytime I'm, I'm with a group of people who I don't know, I, I do that. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm on service when I work in, in the hospital. You know, not only am I masked and around everybody who I know by definition is vaccinated, but, you know, also wear protective eye gear, very careful because we have a COVID ward. So I take mm. care of children with COVID. But, you know, I'm extremely careful. So I think I'm very unlikely to get it. Right, right. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything I miss? Is there anything you would like to say? You're the expert here. so. <laughs> no, I think that was great. Thank you very much. Enjoy life in sun, sunny California. So you're in Northern or Southern California? I'm in Northern California that's in that. Oakland. Great. Well, that's, that's yeah. So, great it, so you're obviously a great source of information. I think it can be tough maybe sometimes to know because people do go on Joe Rogan and they act as if they're a brilliant scientist who has all the answers. So what's your advice for kind of finding the most evidence-based protocols and things when it comes to COVID? Right. So most people get their uh, information off the internet. Um, just go to reliable sources. I, so, so usually university-based sources, you know, um, uh, um, hospital-based sources. I think if you're, if you're looking for information, go to sites that aren't selling anything. That should already mm. be a clue as to whether or not you're getting reasonable information. But I mean, our center, the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia at vaccine.chop.edu, we try and answer your COVID questions all the time. We answer 10 or 15 a day and post them. And we have a lot of information about not COVID vaccines only, but you know, sort of all vaccines. So we have videos. We put out little animations about how vaccines work. So there are a lot of groups like ours out there who are trying trying to get good information out there. And there's, there's a lot of good information out there. Sadly, there's a lot of bad information out there. Yeah. But uh, there, it's, it's out there. Okay, good. Well, I'll put a link to that. Is that the best place to find more of your work and to I think that, follow that's you? Right, yeah. Vaccine, okay, that's great. Awesome. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And again, just thank you so, so much for giving us your time and sharing your wisdom today. My pleasure, Brooke. Take care. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week.